Okay. We're going to walk through the text, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Verse 11 and 12, John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. He judges, sorry, with justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And, and this is a symbol we've seen earlier in Revelation. It actually was in Revelation chapter 1, where John describes Jesus revealing himself to John. And these eyes of fire kind of invoke this, this symbolism of, of, of being able to see through anything. There's nothing that isn't hidden from the eye. They just pierce and burn through any strongholds and pretension and masks. On his head are many crowns, right? We just sang the uh, all hail the power of Jesus' name, right? Another famous hymn, a crown him with many crowns, right? The royal diadem. There's a symbol of real authority. We've seen a beast crowned, but again, like the like the prostitute was a parody of the bride, the, pe- the beast was a parody of true authority and true lordship. Now we see, in a sense, the king of the universe making himself known. And he has many crowns, meaning he doesn't just have one, like, oh, Jesus is king over, like, this part of reality or, like, the spiritual parts of reality. He's lord over all. That, that's invoked in his title. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Abraham Kuyper, Dutch Reformed theologian, says there is no um, inch of created reality in which Christ does not say that is mine. And that's why in Revelation, the grand arc is not, hey, Christians, don't worry, we'll pull you up out of the earth into heaven forever. It's Jesus is coming back to reclaim that which is his because he is Lord of heaven and earth. So how would it be a victory if he just let earth by and by just get destroyed and then live off in heaven forever. He wants to be Lord over all that he has made. There's a name, it says, that no one knows but he himself. And that reminds readers that God has not revealed everything about himself. Deuteronomy says the secret things belong to the Lord. There are things about the majesty and character of God by inference that if you knew it would disintegrate you. It would be too glorious. It would be too weighty and heavy to actually hold. So God has to sort of, even in the most powerful experiences that we have of God on this side of heaven, and that we will on the other, there is still a restraint because we can't even take in his full glory. 13, he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. And theologians will debate, is this robe dipped in Jesus' blood, like his sacrificial atoning blood, because he hasn't gone to war yet, or is this the blood of his enemies? And you have Christian theologians that sort of um, advocate for one side of that argument, but I think the wisest is to recognize that it's, it's a both and, not an either or. Jesus has conquered through his blood, but... There's an oracle given in Isaiah 63 of the coming one, and one of the things that will distinguish the coming one when God's kingdom is fully established is that the blood of God's enemies will be spilt, those bent on evil and destruction. In Isaiah 63, it says, who is this coming from Edom? Like Edom's been destroyed, this evil kingdom, and now there's someone coming out of the wreckage, and you're seeing Isaiah's point of view. Who is this? with his garments stained in crimson. 
Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And then the person says, it is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. And then the person says, why are your garments red? Like those who have been treading the wine press, right? Like treading the grapes, just his white, clean robes covered in red. What, what's going on? And the person says, I have trodden the wine press alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments, and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So this really challenging dual imagery of Christ's sacrificial blood, which protects his people, but that same blood, in a sense, indicts those who have looked upon that offer of salvation and said, nah, whatever, I'll, I'll, I'll do what's right in my own eyes. In verse 14, it says, the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses. They were dressed in fine linen, white and clean. That's important. We'll get to this next week. Jesus fights the battle. He's allowed to wage war because it's always just, but Christians are not. Christians are meant to always be peacemakers. What Jesus does, he can do, but we'll get into that next week. Coming out of Jesus' mouth was a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And then there's a callback to Isaiah. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Notice the sword that comes out of his mouth is a symbol of authority. It's a symbol of truth, of rulership. And it's a symbol of the word of God, right? The word of God is living and active, like a two-edged sword that can cut right down to dividing um, a bone from marrow. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And um, one neat tie-in to something that is, unfortunately, more infamous in Revelation is that if you um, use uh, what's called the gematric value, which is when you take a letter in the Hebrew or Greek alphabet and you numerize it, so you know A would be one, B would be two, and you apply that to king of kings, lord of lords, in Aramaic, which is by the ninth decade in the first century, the vernacular of uh, the, the period, it actually adds up to the number 777. So again, you're getting this mirror of all these forces of evil are claiming to be an authority, they're posturing like they're an authority, but now the true authority has come. And by his title and by his deeds, he reveals that he actually is the king. You know, all the kings of the earth, all the rulers, they're, they're, they're looking around and they're playing this game of who's on the top of the power pyramid. And there's somebody, like right now, there is somebody somewhere, whether you think it's Jeff Bezos because of wealth or other people because of political influence, there's many people probably who would think, like, I'm on the top of that pile, like I'm on the top of the pyramid. I am the most powerful person in the world. 
I don't have ultimate power. Maybe I'd like it, but I am the most. If you were to do a hierarchy of reality right now, and here you have the king saying, I have true authority. Whatever pretensions and posturings and pretending there is, I am setting the record straight. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun. He cries in a loud voice, come together for the great supper of God. So we've seen the wedding feast of the lamb alluded to last week, and now there is a mirror supper. But it's these birds feasting on the flesh of kings, which is really vivid imagery, and it comes out of the Old Testament that whenever you have this city or this kingdom raised to the ground and you have the carrion and the crows you know, eating the flesh, it's a symbol of complete and utter defeat. Like it's not like, oh, the buildings got destroyed, that was bad, but like there's a critical mass they can rebuild and we'll have to deal with Edom again, we'll have to deal with Babylon again. It's like, no, when the birds are coming in and feasting on the flesh, it's like, that's it, it's over. So in really vivid language, there's a not-so-subtle declaration that all the forces of evil that stand against God and against God's purposes in the world will be brought to complete annihilation. Verse 19, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. And with these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And the, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. I'll dip into this a little bit more next week. But what we're seeing here at the highest level is... A battle that's kind of like a non-battle. These you have this picture of the nations and these armies gathering, ready to face whatever forces are coming from the heavens, ready to say, Oh, I'll take on the gods of the higher powers. I'm gonna show you, we're gonna show you by our might who's really in charge. And there's actually there's no battle. It's just it's over. Jesus captures the beast, word of his mouth, just with a word, just like God said, you know, let there be light, and there's light. God creates from the words of his mouth, and he takes life and destroy. There, there isn't this large, protracted, oh, for day 88 on the front, the armies of heaven are fighting the armies of earth. It, it, it's no. Jesus reveals himself, and in this last attempt to take back authority and to overthrow God, it's so pitiful. God's just like, done. Now, when you look at this passage at a very high level, I want you to understand how absolutely epic it is. I mean, this is an epic, I mean, this is where, you know, Peter Jackson and Lord of the Rings, if you go back and you should, you should watch Lord of the Rings movies every year, like a high and holy ritual. They're awesome. Can you go to the next slide, Greg? You've got this battle of Helm's Deep where Gandalf comes over the ridge in the morning, right all seems completely hopeless. And then he charges down and rescues the Rohirrim, and it's the rider on a white horse. And even in the interviews, Peter Jackson said, yeah, like I was inspired by some biblical imagery. He doesn't talk about Revelation 19, but it's right there. And it's an amazing scene. And for me, that's just indelibly imprinted on 
my imagination, and I can't think or read about Revelation 19 without thinking of that scene. When times are darkness, the writer reveals himself and comes in power and in glory and rescues um, those who were in a situation of um, complete hopelessness and on the edge of despair. And that's what we're seeing here. And imagine if you're a first century Christian being brutally persecuted, um, economically persecuted, physically beaten, children being separated from you, spouses being separated from you, being tortured, or just being taken and never heard from again. Think about the power this imagery and this truth would have for you to know that this isn't just going to be the way things are going to play out forever and ever and ever. Rescue is coming. And pastorally, what I would recommend, and I think this is a good use of the text in terms of ground-level discipleship, when you're going through places of darkness, when you're going through struggles, when, like David says in Psalm 23, I feel like I'm surrounded by my enemies, go back to Revelation 19, you know, verses 11 to 21, and just read these and try and picture it in your mind's eye and to realize that Jesus is going to literally come again like this one day, but right now, this is still the God. This is still the king who's fighting for you, and go to him in prayer. Allow this to be a comfort. There's a lot of, I mean, for me in Revelation, I, I guess it, probably longer than I think now, probably about a month ago, I was just reflecting on one of the passages that I was speaking on, and it was kind of an obscure, strange passage, but I was listening to worship music, and I just started to tear up. I just had this moment of like, Jesus is so powerful, and like he is for me. Like it's not the meek and mild Jesus, there are certain parts of the Gospels for me. It's this mighty king. He's for me, and he's fighting even right now that I'm not aware of, that I can't see. I did want to talk about one question that I think can arise from this text quickly. And that is, if so much of Revelation is symbolic, if so much of it is figurative, how do we know that this isn't symbolic too? And what I mean by that is, how do we know, like Christians talk a lot about Jesus coming again, but do they mean that like literally? Like is Jesus really going to come back one day? Like on a particular Thursday at 2.13, the heavens are going to open and however the mechanisms work, this is going to happen? Or is this sort of a beautiful picture of all of the ways that God intervenes in our life, sometimes powerfully, and this is like a picture that's meant to remind us that hard times come, there are darkness in, there's darkness in the world, but God's love breaks through. And the reason why I want to ask this question is it's fairly personal to me. My grandfather is a pastor in the United Church. And I remember when I was 21, 22, talking to him about some of this stuff. And I can't remember how we got into the conversation. He's a very gentle spirit. There was no contention in the debate. But he very matter-of-factly said, yeah, I don't believe in like a literal resurrection. I believe it's metaphorical. And I believe that something like the second coming is like... It's, it's like a metaphor. It's a metaphor for the ways that God 
breaks through the darkness of our life and presents his glory and power. And I remember being floored by that uh, as a somewhat young Christian. I hadn't even been a Christian for 10 years yet. And I understand how you could get there, though, because Revelation is full of these weird symbols. We don't, I mean, there's very few Christians who believe a literal ten-headed beast is coming up out of the sea, and there's a woman riding on the beast. Those are symbols that are figurative pictures of realities. But what is this reality? Is it pointing to an actual return of Jesus? Or as some commentators, who I don't agree with, but some commentators would argue, well, this is actually a picture of the gospel going out into the world. So whenever we share the gospel with someone else, Christ came for you, Christ died for you, Christ resurrected for you, in that moment, when that person receives Christ, it's like the word of God breaking into the darkness, like this army of heaven invading the armies of earth. Is that how we're supposed to understand this? And I want to say really clearly, I think we're supposed to very clearly take from this a literal return of Jesus. Because this is drawing attention to a theme and a topic that comes through the entire Bible and particularly the New Testament. Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Who walks in the garden in the cool of the day? Well, this is actually Genesis 3. Um, God does. God created reality to be a home for him and his image bearers. Sin alienated us from God and in a sense caused God to have to retract because if his full holiness was brought to bear on a sinful world, it gets obliterated. So there has to be a mediation. Christ comes, deals with the spiritual alienation that we have before God, but God's plan is always to reclaim what he has lost. You have them in your handout notes, but these are some of the New Testament verses that speak very clearly to not just the hope we have as Christians that as we share the gospel, other people will become Christians and then we all just get to go to heaven and that's kind of the end of the story and then reality plays out here forever. No, history has an end point where Christ returns to establish, as we'll see in a few weeks, a new heavens and a new earth. Even Revelation 1 says, he is coming in the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. There's going to be a full apocalypse. And those who, have, who are not in Christ will mourn. Right? You ever have like really bad news or something that you didn't want to be true and then it was revealed and you have that sense of like, oh, brutal. Or maybe like you thought, I should have invested in Bitcoin when it was here because if I would have invested $100, I would have been a millionaire. And you hear stories about that and you're like, Oh, I should have put my should have hedged my bets and gone in with Bitcoin. This is the mourning that the world experiences. Oh, it all was true. Like Jesus is real, but now it's too late. You know, it's like, oh, oh I believe you came now, Jesus. It's like, no. Philippians 3, Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a savior from there. Notice that. Not, we can't wait to just go up and be with him forever. We wait for him to come to us. It's going to be awesome. Who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, not just spiritual spaces up in heaven, 
He will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Matthew 16, these are the words of Jesus. The Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels. And then he will reward each person according to what they've done. I don't think that's figurative language. Jesus is speaking, and the context makes it very clear. I'm here. I will be leaving. I will be returning. Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared that offsets, sorry, offers salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? While we wait until we die and get to go to heaven, be with Jesus. No, the actual greater hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those, meaning Christians, who sleep in death. We don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Bring with Jesus where? Like bring them from heaven to earth. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. And after that, those who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There's this picture here. And I'm going to plant a seed, let it water for a week, and then hopefully it blooms by next. The picture here is not we get raptured up and then go back up to heaven. Paul is saying we're going to go and meet the Lord in the air because what would happen in ancient times when a king conquered a nation, when the king and the army was coming back, the people of the city would go out to meet the king and then create a parade and procession to lead him back and say, look, our king returns. So what we're seeing here is a picture of Jesus is returning. He pulls his church up into the air, and then they come down as part of the armies of heaven and say, this is your world, Jesus. Take what is yours. Rule and reign with justice. 2 Thessalonians 1, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. What we're seeing in Revelation 19 is a symbolic and powerful depiction of Jesus' return. And the reality is going to be even more glorious but it's a literal event that's going to happen. And I want you to think, and maybe you haven't really thought about this before, but I want you to understand the kind of hope that should give you. No matter how hard your life is, no matter how difficult, no matter how messy, no matter how disappointing, no matter how much abuse and persecution and brutality you may need to face in your life or those in your life for being faithful to Jesus might need to face. Christians 
have been, God has revealed to Christians that he is going to come and intervene and make everything right. And maybe some of us have heard that before, but I really want it to land this morning because think about what the alternative is. There are many people who believe in kind of a strict materialistic view of the universe. What you see is what you see. That's all there is. It's just a very complex and mysterious in some level, you know, interplay of materialistic forces. But if you push them to the consequences, they're going to say, yeah, like you, 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 you came from nothing. You're going to go to nothing. Um, you're here by crazy. Enjoy your time and make the most of it. But I want you to hold that thought, and I want you to think through how dark and how disheartening that view would be to actually live into that. Like, if that is a story of reality, and maybe you say, well, I've had a good life, so I'm kind of happy. Okay, but what about the person who experiences untold abuse, and because of the country they, re- they live in or the time they lived in or the circumstances, they're, they're never going to see justice, like ever. The child who dies from beatings at three years old. Like, like that was it? Like, we can mourn. Like, we can be like, oh, that was sad. But, like, that's it? Like, that, that evil, that destruction, that's never going to be addressed? The persecution that comes to those who attempt to stand up for God and do the right thing, the malicious mistreatment, all, I mean, you, you can fill in the blanks. Like, there's not going to be a reckoning for any of that. And this is just the way it's going to play out for billions more year until the heat death of the sun. I mean, I don't even think it's a psychologically tenable worldview. But thank God, like, that's not the worldview that the Bible reveals to be true. It's that God is just. Yes, there's evil and suffering in the world. God is using it for his purposes. He's redirecting it. But it's on the clock. And when Jesus returns, he's going to make all things new and all things right. And the end of the story isn't death ultimately just swallows everything up and then we'll just be nothing. The end of the story is that life swallows up death. Christ comes and by the word of his mouth, destroys everything that fosters sin and injustice and evil and then allows those who are in him to move forward into a future in a full reality cleansed from all sinful impurities. It's amazing. And I, and I, and I say that because it would be a good week to just draw that to mind every day and say, thank you, God, that we have this hope. Thank you that we have this hope. Thank you that the start of the story is good and the middle part is messy, but the end is good. And it's going to be a better ending than we can really even envision. And we'll see that as the chapters in Revelation unfold. Don't take that for granted as a Christian. I think Christianity is the only worldview that from start to finish, up and down, all the way through, can give you a psychological hope that the world isn't just ultimately bent towards death, destruction, and evil. 
Justice is coming, righteousness is coming, judgment is coming, restitution, redemption is coming, and it's all happening in and through God himself, the person of Jesus. Let me end it there for today. Let me pray, and then we'll prepare for a time of communion.